legalizefreedom.com. Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Fight Club, the strongest and smartest men who've ever lived. I see all this potential, and I see squandered. God damn it, an entire generation pumping gas, waiting tables, slaves with white collars. Advertising has us chasing cars and clothes, working jobs we hate so we can buy shit we don't need. the middle children of history, man. No purpose or place. We have no great war. No great depression. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great depression is our lives. We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars. But we won't. Slowly learning that fact. I'm very, very pissed off. Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat, and my guest today is James Tunney. In the latest in a series of dialogues, we ask what steps might be taken to resist the rise of AI and the technocratic takeover of our lives. Spiraling complexity exponential energy use and complete dependence on the grid are the system's Achilles heel and the source of its power and control can potentially be turned against it. Human creativity and spontaneity are powerful weapons in resisting the machine mind which is why they are being targeted for elimination. The numbers of those being sucked into the system and those seeking to escape it are both increasing but the advantage still lies with the techno-totalitarians. The comfort of the velvet-lined cage may yet numb humans into accepting their annihilation, should they awaken too late to their true potential. Hello and uh, welcome, James. Thank you so much for joining us yet again on LegalizeFreedom.com. It's always a pleasure, Greg. I'm looking forward to the conversation, as usual. Okay, so as the last couple of times, James, we'll dispense with uh, your biographical information. There's There's a link to your website and your work available on the interview page. For this interview at legalizefreedom.com, we will. If people are new to you know the, the subjects we're talking about here, you know artificial artificial intelligence, the development thereof, and transhumanism and the technocracy, uh, I don't maybe advise they do a bit of research. They could do worse than going back over our series of interviews again. They're all linked on the interview page for this. But we're picking up kind of where we left off last time with our talk, which was based on your latest book, The Mythic Aim of AI, Maiming the Mind. One of the thoughts that we left off was, uh, and then we're diving straight in here, I and mean, this is why I urge you know listeners to check out the previous episodes. Yeah. Uh, we talked about the technocratic elites, you know, the would-be controllers, 
uh, World Economic Forum, the Davos, all the sort of transnational, non-governmental organizations and what lies behind those and their agendas, but also concluding really with their fears, you know, what's driving this transhumanist thing, you know, about doing away with, you know, the family unit and the human body, getting beyond our physical form, which is actually really amazing and magical when you look at it and becoming something else, you know, this idea of like living forever and augmentation, you know, so that all the things that happen to the human body in the course of a lifetime no longer happen. But it's, as we looked at it, it was just some kind of hellscape along the lines of, you know, King Midas or, um, you know, (laughs) vampires condemned to live forever. Then where this was going to lead into was, and we touched upon this, some potential problems with AI and the technocratic agenda, and then the idea of resistance to it, what can be done. Now, this is this is not just uh, in physical terms, but in terms of, you know, psychologically, that's a, one of the real battlegrounds, I think. So in terms of problems with AI, we finished up last time talking about what I call digital dementia, which is increasingly complex supercomputers running uh, all sorts of interconnected systems and those basically malfunctioning and what that means uh what that would mean for the sort of end user as it were um us and what that would look like in terms of well if these systems are deemed infallible uh, but bearing in mind they were built by humans and started with human inputs if a sort of self-learning or an ai dimension is allowed to take over how far along the road would people go with, well, the computer can't make mistakes, you know, the AI never lies. So Mm. um, maybe we can start there as a way of bringing in what we finished with last time and getting us into, um, in the first instance, some of the uh, technical problems that some of these systems might present. Yeah. Well, the, if we look at the post office case uh, recently in Britain, I mean, it's a shocking, it's a shocking case, an example of what happens when these systems don't are, are dysfunctional and don't work properly, and how they contribute towards uh, miscarriages of justice. And I don't know what's true, but I, I see that the same system is used in your criminal record system. So uh, that's the or part of it. I'm not sure how, how true that is, but it's the that kind of fear of dysfunction and inconvenience is something that people know about being dependent on on, on computers. Uh, and it, but it doesn't really matter. Functionality is is not important because if order out of chaos is is the principle, the cultivation of chaos is just as useful for the people who want a different type of order or to elevate the type of order. And high transaction costs for us in our daily life, if it's very, very difficult for us to do ordinary things, is useful in so far for them insofar as it's very difficult to organize and to focus on, on the problems that need our attention. But uh, we have to think more and more in terms of uh, AI, as we've talked about, and a shift to post-humanism, because transhumanism is implies some degree of choice and it's usually associated with people with a lot of power and post-humanism is the is the end goal as you've indicated the idea of moving beyond the human but it's also a philosophical movement 
which attacks the idea of the human, which says it's a bad thing constructed by imperial powers, and the human, the, the special nature of the human has to be destroyed. And this goes hand in hand with AI. The two of them are complementary. They're two sides of the one pincer movement, if you like. So AI is a technology that implements a post-humanist ideal. And post-humanism is a kind of philosophy that sells it. It's the shop window, if you like, that makes it appear to be something nice and something interesting and something innovative. And this is a very, very strong movement. But effectively, it means the the end of the human race. So uh, the end of the human as we know it, uh, focused on ideas like breaking down barriers between the human and their environment, and uh, effectively the technology penetrating into humans. So the important point to remember is that whatever dysfunctional things we have, whatever consequence of cyber insecurity, which is used as leverage to gain more control, the ultimate objective is to be able to control us with technology. And, and one story that comes to mind, or one book that comes to mind in this context, which was important, as you know, in relation to science fiction, uh, from, from an English perspective and, and a broader global perspective, is the coming race and the, uh, the idea you know, from the late 19th century and the idea that there, there would be an underground race, which were mainly electrical beings. Electricity comes into it, or had had the the, the vril, the power, um, which is used in the word they use in the in the brand name Bovril, actually, which is interesting. But the the vril was this kind of electric-like power, which distinguished these uh, groups that lived underground from the, the people that lived on uh, the upper ground. And there is this general sense behind a lot of the disparate movements that were moving from light beings to electrical beings. The arguments behind technocracy from the 1930s were predicated on changing from a, a normal economy as we know it towards one which is purely based on electricity. So the role of electricity is not what we think it is. And if we, go, if we look at people like Steiner, he said that uh, electricity is the evil form of light or words to that effect. And there is an implication in all of this that the post-human form will be something which is controllable, switched on, switched off through a system uh, of electricity or something, some element like that, so that we will be confined in an electrical grid ourselves. And this will be the mechanism by which perhaps nanoparticles, i.e. where we integrate, this is an important distinction as we're talking about our own approach, that a lot of these movements and the new world order movements, they're really into distinctions between tactics and strategies and not confusing them. So some of the apparent problems are tactics in their hands to achieve a broader strategy. And the broader strategy in all cases will be to increase our dependence and integration into systems. So whatever solution comes up will always be a higher iteration solution, which integrates us more. So when we when we get there, our digital currency after the great cyber insecurity collapse, for example, then they can move from that digital currency towards using the human body in the currency system, which is the objective. And then it's easy to move into a, a the endosymbiosis direct control. 
So I, I, what I would say in all this, when we're thinking about our own strategy and a macro strategy, a micro and a macro strategy, what we do ourselves and what the problem is, that I, I mentioned the, great, the greatest game is control of our consciousness or spiritual consciousness, if you like, a soul. This is, this is the kind of the cosmic game behind it. There is no other game. It's not an end in itself to have better management. Uh, or, or something like this. It's really about taking control of of human consciousness by mecha by mechanical means by a technical elite, and that that that's quite a, a clear uh, ob objective. So uh, we we have to distinguish between short term maneuvers that they do in order to gain more power, and we have to be able to anticipate them, uh, and distinguish between the the tactics, strategy, and deeper things like the philosophy and the epistemology and, and all that kind of stuff. So I, I would say that there's going to be plenty of problems. Many of these problems will be created problems, calculated to gain more control because we're, our dependence is increasing. They've given us, uh, as Bill Gates said in, in the 90s, we have to get children hooked on the computers, as we said, it's in the book, The Road Ahead. They've got us hooked, and and the drug will, the dosage will be increasing. You know, we're we're becoming more uh, electronic junkies by the day. Uh, our dependence will go up. Their ability to do things will will, uh, will 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 increase appropriately, and they will be able to move towards this post-human scenario. The post-human scenario can be assisted by the usual Malthusian uh, levers they have of massive war. This overpopulation fear, which uh, they they always uh, had, this fear of disease that they had, and particularly you can see it in Victorian London, it was very important in their mindset, and this intense desire to control, uh, not just to control the people, but to control them down to the uh, to a cellular level. So we really have to think in terms of what their end game is in order to understand all the things that can happen. And we then get better at predicting the social factors that are presented to us uh, as surprises. And we also have to begin to think in decompartmentalized ways. So we don't think that communication technology policy is separate from pharmaceutical policy or is separate from geopolitics or is separate from whatever. They're all they're all integrated and all of the levers are are, are, are used and utilized or maneuvered uh, or, or forced to achieve uh, that ultimate uh, strategy. So uh, we will today be focused more on near term and, you know, things that will be happening ostensibly anyway, you know, in, the, in, our, in our physical everyday lives. But of course, as you mentioned, this background is very important in the decompartmentalized thinking yes. and understanding the philosophy behind all of it. But we will talk, because I think a lot of people meeting them where they are are kind yes. of saying, yes, but what can I do? Yeah. yeah. And if, if they're only presented with um, theory and philosophy and great overarching yeah. uh, historical you know, yes. arcs, they can feel, some people, what they want to know is, what can I do tomorrow? Yeah. Or you know, what can I do today? Uh, so but I think it's very useful to, to bring the things together, you know, say you're seeing these developments on TV and in your everyday life, you know, you, you feel there's something wrong here. What does it mean? And 
what should I do next? And but having the the philosophical background then helps you inform the actions, you know, because it's that's the whole thing about 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 this reality. It seems that we you know we're we're in it, but not necessarily of it. But when people say to me, "Oh, yes, you know, in a sort of new age way, but life's just a dream." I'm like, yeah. well, but nevertheless, we're in that dream now, and we're interacting in that, and it, what we do is important. Uh, just in passing, you mentioned uh, Vril, the power of the coming race. Um, for people who are interested, uh, Edward uh, Bulwer-Lytton uh, yeah. was a, is a, in the Victorian era. He was writing. Um, the book itself is strong in ideas. Uh, it's just it's not very well written, to be honest. <laughs> no. no, I think it was, it was at the time when the bar was maybe a bit lower. Maybe I'm wrong on that, you know. Um, I don't know where he would fit in in the late 20th century. He probably would have been a, a pulp author, uh, you know, with lots of readers, as he had back then. But the whole thrust of it is very interesting, as you say, about this master race living, you know, beneath the earth, the nature of their being. And it was actually influential on some uh, high-ranking Nazis during the, uh, That's right, yeah. th- the Third Reich. Uh, you know, they probably dispatched teams, you know, because we know that the Nazis got all over the place, Antarctica, you know, the North Pole, you name it. They were they were scouring the planet for evidence for their their occult theories, you know. <laughs> yeah. But but one of the reasons just to, just to why I start off with that, for, especially for people that may not have heard it, but just to remind people, the first thing has to be an analysis, a proper analysis of what the problem is. Because a lot of times when I'm listening to the alternative media or people of, of good criticism, they can go off on a tangent which becomes counterproductive. So what, what all I'm saying out of that is make sure that you understand and that we all do perfect an analysis which is based on, on proper history. And I'll give you an example why it's relevant. I think London is critical. So reading about the history of London, the history of science gives you a lot of insights into what's happening for example there's a lot of you don't have to be particularly interested to have noticed that in the last six months there's a huge increase in talk about ufos and a lot of people genuinely don't know what to make of this you know they don't know is this true is it accurate is it a a psyop or whatever and when we look at the agenda historically and again another london reference the war of the worlds by hg wells the the main person behind the new world order it immediately makes one aware of what the tactical uh, or strategic aim behind this idea of an alien invasion is and the the fact that it's been used historically so what i'm saying about some of these issues particularly the historical issues is they are practically relevant to how you interpret the world today oh absolutely yeah yeah i think so i think we've established the importance of that and uh really um as i was hinting at you know trying to navigate current reality uh without that background really you're flying blind um you can really be able to see things for what they are in terms of the technology that we're speaking about earlier uh, what you mentioned about uh, planned, you know, disorder, planned chaos, and actual just spiraling chaos in some of these systems, I think we'll be looking at a mixture of both. I personally don't feel that, at least on 
a surface level that every technological mass malfunction is uh you know is designed you know in the immediate term to create some kind of deliberate effect there do seem to be technological problems just things yes. going wrong well how deep you go behind that in terms of like what could be driving it is another matter but technologically speaking towards the end of the 20th century and now very much into the 21st thing technologies become increasingly complex I mean, part it's doing more things in many cases, but not necessarily always better. We see this in consumer products, for example, the mobile phone, smartphone being the obvious example. They get increasingly complex, but how much better are they really at doing what previous you know models did? And the increasing complexity brings with it more potential problems, you know, technological malfunctions, and more more sort of opaqueness. The more that increasing numbers of people don't understand. The technology and the devices, they don't know what to do with them. There's just dwindling number of people who really understand the heart of some of this technology. That I see as, we see in this manifest in all sorts of areas, that the response to a technological problem, oh, okay, so uh, you see this particularly with um, uh, electric cars, for example, at the moment, or hybrid ones. The problem has developed here. So, our, you know, because of technological complexity, so our response is another layer of technology yes. kind of on top of that. There's no, it seems to be very rarely does there seem to be, well, you know, how can we simplify this? It seems to be because we have this technology, then technology must be applied. You know, technology is the only solution. A good example of this recently was something that I experienced a couple of times in my day-to-day life. We had one here in our city. Uh, it lasted less than an hour, but at one point, all of the cash processing technology—you know, the little machines that the stores have that you tap yeah. your card on—all of that network went down. Didn't matter what bank anybody was using or what certain you know internet service provider, it all went black. And yeah. interestingly, this affected the ATMs as well. So even if you had your card, you couldn't withdraw cash. So this started about nine o'clock in the morning. That was resolved before 10 o'clock, but those of us in the middle of it, we didn't know how long it was going to take. You had a combination of like, okay, so you've got a card, but you can't use it anywhere. If you don't have cash, you can't get cash out. If you do have cash, you're facing increasing numbers of businesses and traders who don't take cash. So the whole system was paralyzed instantly. I mean, nobody died, you know what I mean? Because it didn't last that long. And if it carried on throughout the day, there would have been workarounds. But a lot of businesses would just have to have shuttered for the day if that had carried on. So for me, that's a a very practical example that I think we're seeing more of um, in the systems that people use from day to day, whether it's payments or communications or, you know, access to media or transport systems. Yeah. And then... Uh, same thing happened here with the supermarkets chains here their system went down and they were closed for a while last year year before so these things are going to happen and everything will be used as a leverage to increase our dependence in a different way so oh these don't work if you have this little chip some other card whatever some id uh, it will work easier we don't need that (laughs) it's more efficient etc so uh, there's leverage behind all these systems um but so, so that ratchet effect is built into all these systems. If you look at the investment of in cash registers, registers, for example, in the history of cash registers, it's ridiculous the amount of money invested in cash register systems in small operations. 
And there was a, a bigger reason behind that in relation to information gathering. But the bigger problem is in the formalization of informal uh, re relations. So as these systems increase, our human interactions decrease and we have less and less co human contact. And with AI, that's increasing. So if you listen to someone like Alexander Wang uh, and Scale, his company, and what he talks about, a uh, billionaire that talks about AI, he's saying that we'll be spending most of our time dealing with AI models in, you know, in, in our daily life. So this is part of the problem because the, 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 it vindicates the argument that we're becoming post-human. We're not human in a recognizable way as we begin to not interact with humans, as we begin to lose skills of communication or maybe not even be used to dealing with people anymore on a face-to-face -face level. These are skills that are, are developed, that are learned, uh, and, and that can diminish. So there's a multilateral analysis that we have to we have to use cash is is, is really d hard to come by here or is really uh, underused uh, and that's not going to change and it's not going to change in most countries now the the die is cast on these things the arguments against them should have been 10 years ago and nobody cared or or, or or bothered so most of these things are not going backwards i, I don't believe Unfortunately, so I'm I'm fairly pragmatic about describing what the what the issue is. People went for apparent convenience uh, in in countries like Sweden, and they're going to have to take the consequences of that. Unfortunately, the 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 reestablishment of uh, alternative systems is going to be very very difficult. I know a lot of people believe that they can be done with crypto. Um, however, uh, they don't understand how serious the government will get if they want to uh, take away competing uh, competing systems. A lot of my friends who are into crypto say, well, they can't control it. They can't govern it. Uh, you know, we, we can always escape uh, scrutiny. Uh, it will be simple. It will, it will be what the master of the mint did in, in, in London when they wanted to, to, to get rid of counterfeit. And remember that Isaac Newton was the master of the mint as well. They will, they will, they will bring in the death penalty for people that use it. And I can see this happening in the future. And I, I, I can assure you that when they say it is a felony punishable by, by death under military law to utilize alternative systems, uh, it will have an effect on, on the, the people that are, are, are believe that their technology can keep them away from this in the future. Uh, will change their tune. This is the history of the enforcement of money rules. And the, the, Isaac Newton used to prosecute people that, let, that were executed in, in, in uh, London or was involved in that. And people, like, people forget about that. This connection between science and money systems and currency, etc. And currency, notice the, uh, you know, the similarity to the word or, or the use in the word electricity. Um, there, there is a, a correspondence between them. So some of these big things are, I'm not being defeatist about it, uh, but we have to be very, very conscious that uh, some, of the, some of the battles have been lost. So we're going to have to be selective about how we deal with it. I mean, fundamentally, the 
primarily, I, I, I see the issue as, as primarily related to our perception of ourselves. It's before that. It's the issue of who we are and what we're willing to give up about ourselves. But we can't know what we're losing unless we properly, we have a proper inventory of what the human being is. And a lot of people are conceding notions of what the human is already. They've conceded the, the supernatural domain, for example, that it doesn't exist. You know, the scientific model is uh, proves that it doesn't exist, for example. <coughs> Excuse me, and, and these levels can happen on, on our on transactional basis. We can make concessions uh, in our worldview through the way that we we interact, use these systems, um, and communicate, for example. So uh, a lot of people think that there's going to be that the clock is going to be rewound on some of these issues. Uh, I don't see it in that way. I, I think we really have to 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 begin to look at the stage that's coming after, because by the time we've we realised that we're behind the curve again or, or that the move has uh, uh, has happened, that the die has been cast or we've crossed the Rubicon, we won't be ready for the next problem coming along on the line. Um, so I, I, I'm not trying to be pessimistic about that. What, what I'm saying is that the ultimate issue behind it is deeper. The issue is how do humans interact with humans? This is the, the deep issue. That we have to consider in, in all these in all these contexts. Well, I mean, I have crypto, but really, it's, um, it's you know, it's a form of gambling. Really, it's you know, it's a casino. Um, don't put anything on the table you can't afford to lose. And one of the reasons I, you know, dipped my toe into that was because of the the you know, with what do you do with your money if you know what I mean? And here, maybe we could talk about that as you know, one of the practical responses just you know as going forward it's been made increasingly difficult to um you know if you have any spare money at the end of the month you know depending if you're not already you know independently wealthy or secure in that front what do you do with any spare money you've got i mean money in the bank's a waste of time uh we hear talk now about negative interest rates uh, which would basically penalise people for holding money in the bank, not just through like l not paying interest or int interest well below inflation, but actually costing you money at the end of the month. Effectively, what that would mean is that, say, you were paid two thousand credits in a month in your job. Um, if you didn't spend the two thousand credits by the end of the month, you'd lose the balance. So it's gone yeah. beyond, you know, saving um, over into like, you know, got no incentive to hold on to anything, you know, whatsoever. And then it's what do you do with your money? So for me, crypto is just, a, you know, a, a roll of the dice, a gamble thinking, well, I'll get some of this and see what happens. You know, it's been up, it's been down, it's been yo-yoing all over the place. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's almost like we've been talking about, you know, these developments and it's just an inexorable march onward with them. And that, you know, alternative systems will be very difficult to develop or in, implement. But people I talk to, I've been saying, look, based on what I'm doing, if you've got money at the end of the month, buy things that you'll be able to use in future. And, you know, this this sort of thinking can go back to, you know, preppers, you know, in the 70s and 80s, you know, when it looked like nuclear war might be a thing. But buy some things you can use in future, 
and that other people might find useful. So uh, we saw this in a perverse form during the pandemic response when everybody suddenly went berserk and started buying 10 times more toilet rolls than they needed yeah, uh, and how that became a commodity. But, you know, I, I've, I've bought things like gold and silver and um, really nice bottles of whiskey and just things that over time other people have shown an interest in or a willingness to sort of say, I'll have that yeah, if you have this. So I don't know what your thoughts on that are, but it's just been, it's been made increasingly difficult for people to do anything constructive in that sense with their money and combined with the, the materialism and consumerist culture, which is pushing people to sort of completely opposite of what I've just said, buy things that they don't need. And all of what I've said predicated on the idea that anybody would have any spare money left at the end of the day. Well, as I say, the best things in life are, are free. Uh, in in this, there is a, a a strange paradox in a bit about the nature of our needs in in a complex society, and I do think that there is a a mentality, a, a kind of survival mentality, or a frugal mentality that will be necessary to deal with the situations that arise that we're not going to be living in the same way that we have done hitherto. That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com. Legalizefreedom.com.